Talk Soups and CEOs, episode 12. This is a cross pod with our friend Sarah Williamson of the Build Momentum podcast. She did a series on entrepreneurship and education, and I said, hey, let's do it about how all these superintendents have suddenly become entrepreneurial thinkers and workers in this crazy pandemic. And she said, okay, so enjoy this. Sarah hosts, I'm in there. Dr. Quinton Shepard, superintendent of Victoria ISD in Texas, and Katie Lash, the director of the East Central Regional Service Center in Indiana. Two of our great IEI members join us. Come on in. Welcome back. Welcome back to episode 12 of Talk Soups and CEOs season two. Um, I want to thank Sarah Williamson. We've collaborated on a couple little things. We've just been friends um, in the industry and uh, really appreciate her willingness to team up on this. So it's cool. We'll be on uh, the Build Momentum platform of this episode and we're going to play it here as well. And we're joined by two two great superintendents. I said in the in the intro, you know, this is this has been a year where we've seen people like Katie and Quentin um, just have to to get very creative in solving crazy problems that are not the kinds of things any of us have ever experienced before. No one learned about this stuff in superintendent school or education school. A lot of it. Um, so, you know. Uh, I, I think we're, I've been saying it almost every week on the podcast because I'm passionate about it. We are past the point now where we can ever again say that school districts are not entrepreneurial enough, that they don't get it, that they don't get technology. I, I'll keep saying it until it happens, until I'm convinced that we're not going to hear that ever again. I never want to hear a panel of people say, um, you know, school districts are not they're just behind the times and they don't get it and you know you got to work around them. The these school districts have done amazing work this year and I think they've earned everybody's praise and trust that they can in their context, right? Public agencies are always going to be harder to move quickly than private agencies or you know private industry. That's just the way it works. In private industry, there's one person at the top of the chain who makes a decision and then it has to happen, right? Public agencies must, by nature, uh, make decisions in public with the public's input. That's really the way it's supposed to work, and I don't think any of us would want it any other way. So uh, all of that considered, how quickly these folks moved mountains to get, you know, last March, get kids to learn from home somehow, um, then get a plan together to do whatever districts have done, hybrid, in-person, et cetera. You know, that's, that's entrepreneurial thinking, and uh, entrepreneurial hustle. Superintendents have always hustled on behalf of kids. They just had to hustle a little differently this year. Instead of being at you know both high schools' basketball games plus uh, the elementary school play all on one day and make all those kids feel like they're seen and heard, you know that was what they used to do. And this year, <laughs> they got to sit around their offices a lot more, doing a lot more office stuff because we can't go to any of those things. So. 
you know, I'm uh, I'm grateful to all these folks that we get to work with, but I, I I'm gonna keep saying it here, and I was really glad that Sarah um, from Build Momentum latched onto this entrepreneurial concept, and I knew she was having a bunch of private sector folks, and I said, let's get some soups on there. So really great episode, really great discussion. I will mostly get out of the way and let you listen to us banter. However, I do want to say one thing that's just interesting on the national landscape. I, you know, I follow national politics pretty closely, more just as a student of it and, a, and just as having always had an interest in it, right? I get, but whenever they talk education, which honestly is not often enough, but whenever they talk education, whenever you hear school, public school stuff being discussed in the White House briefing room, I tune in. Because the discussion is driven by like five districts, right? It's driven by what's happening in New York City, Chicago, and LA. Because that's sort of all that the media can absorb. And I'm not mad at anybody about it. I'm not mad at CNN that, you know, they have um, Dr. Hinojosa from Dallas on or somebody from, from L.A. Um, or uh, Chancellor of New York City, whoever it is. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's just, that's, that's how, you, right? Like, the mayor of New York City gets on a lot of national TV shows in the way that the mayor of Northport, <laughs> where I'm broadcasting from, or your town, uh, doesn't, right? Like, that's just, that's the way media works, right? Um, but, you know, when we're talking policy and when we're talking about, you know, um, getting kids back to school, I, I hope somebody out there will at some point say in one of these, whether it's the White House briefing room or whatever, that most school districts in America, like almost all of them, have kids physically on site in school in one way or another. Um, Many of the districts that started off with homeschool uh, remote learning have gone to a hybrid by now uh, at some point during the year. You know, like my own kids' district, we started off hybrid, we went full-time on site, then they've had to dial it back a little bit here and there, like around the holidays and stuff. In fact, I just learned that they're the two days after February break, I now have to change my entire schedule because those are going to be homeschool days. Because I guess people can't manage to socially distance over a vacation. I don't understand that. I never will. But it uh, doesn't seem to be a behavior that's going to change. So I re- I'm glad that our district recognizes that and is giving us an extra couple of days of kids learning at home so that uh, you know, we, have, we don't have as big a case count in the district, right? So um, school, like <laughs> when the national media asks the White House press secretary, you know, about how there's all this strife between teachers unions and school districts and kids need to go back to school and um, you know uh, the CDC says it's safe to go to school like I wish someone would say at some point you know I understand your question and we do have some districts including some of the largest in America where that is the case but the vast majority of school districts have figured this out and because it, it sometimes becomes an opportunity to bash teachers, and you know I'm going to get a little defensive here because I was one and I'm married to one. But um, the vast majority of teachers unions have worked with their districts to figure this out. Teachers unions want to be in school teaching kids. You know, it's, it's morale is low for everybody right now in schools, right? We all know that. Um, but you know, let's. I just wish people can 
dish out a little positivity about, about what is happening. Now, the next thing we have to talk about, which is not good, is that it's, it's our most underserved communities who are less likely to be physically in school. It's, you know, if you're talking about New York City public schools, uh, New York City DOE, you know, a lot of the kids in that system are uh, in underserved communities. So it's poor kids who are getting the worst deal in terms of not being able to go physically back to school. This is a great problem. It's a problem that we had before this pandemic. It wasn't then related to being on site in school or not, but like poor kids are underserved in, in public schools. Like that's in, in some public schools. That is something we know. It's a problem we know we have. And it's just, it's heartbreaking how it's, how it's going to play out with this pandemic because unfortunately those are the same districts who, who have the hardest challenge you know, getting back to school, they're they're challenged for space. You know, these are not schools that have big outdoor fields around them. You know, uh, they're challenged, and they they're typically have higher higher class sizes, lower student to higher student to teacher ratio, et cetera. Like on and on and on. This is a problem that we've got to fix as a society, and we've all been trying to fix it since before time. You know, like when our parents got into education, they wanted to fix this. We wanted to when we got into it, um, et cetera, and our kids, when they get into it, will as well. So, you know, all, all I want to say is that, you know, as, as everyone's reading stories in the national media, hearing talking heads on cable news uh, talking about how, you know, and some get pretty vitriolic about, like, oh, the unions, they don't care about the kids. All they care about is themselves, blah, blah, blah. Look, the vast majority of teachers' unions worked with their superintendents with their boards of ed and their superintendents worked with them back to figure a plan out that'll work to get kids in school. That's what most people want. And, um, you know, and I'm not going to be upset with teachers for wanting to, uh, to be safe and avoid getting exposed to the virus. And, um, it's just a tough situation. So that's all. Uh, national <laughs> discussion of K-12 politics over. Um, I just wanted to say something that there's just great work happening in a lot of these districts and they've, they're figuring it out and that's great. Okay, um, enjoy the discussion with Sarah, Quinton, Katie and I'm, I chime in there a little bit too. And on today's episode, we have the true pleasure of partnering with Doug Roberts, the CEO and founder of the Institute for Education Innovation and the host of the podcast, Talk Soups and CEOs. In this episode, we will speak with three education leaders who have navigated the challenges of the pandemic and are implementing an entrepreneurial mindset into the work they're doing every day. We have Katie Lash, the Executive Director for the East Central Educational Services Center in Indiana, Quinton Shepard, a Superintendent for Victoria Independent School District in Victoria, Texas. And of course, we have Doug Roberts as well. Thank you all for joining us. We're really looking forward to this dis discussion. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. So throughout the past several weeks, we've invited several different education leaders from across various sectors, industries, organizations. Um, not, I should clarify, <laughs> not sectors. It's all in education, but um, to share their perspectives with us on why it's important to bring an entrepreneurial mindset to education. And we'd love to talk with all of you about that same question. So let's first start 
with the idea or concept of having an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mindset, what does that mean to each of you? And how have you been able to truly get creative in how you're solving problems, particularly right now as you're facing a very volatile and dynamic time in education and in life? Essentially, we're looking to understand what does having an entrepreneurial mindset mean to each of you? And let's start off with Katie. Do you mind taking it first? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I'm relatively new to my role as as the director of the service center here in Indiana. And um, so I I transitioned out of a building level leadership role. So with this transition, I kind of just jumped into learning as I go, which was actually kind of a, a pleasant place to be because everybody was, you know, rewriting the script of what things, um, the ways that we were functioning. So as I came into this role, um, again, I got to write the script in the sense that um, some of the services that we were doing through the Educational Service Center just weren't um, becoming as relevant. Some examples of that would be um, we had physical items that we would sometimes transport between school districts. Well, um, for obvious reasons, we weren't doing that. And so as we move into this digital space, we were we're having meetings on Zoom and professional development on Zoom for our, for the districts that we serve. And even some months ago, I, people were doing this, of course, but it was it was to ask folks to jump on a Zoom was something that they would have to prep for and maybe you know plan and and get some help with. Well, now we're so accustomed to just living on Zoom. I think some of our services now will forever, you know function this way and people are comfortable with that. Um, there's still like the demand for some human interaction and and having some of our events here in person. I, I hope that we'll get back to that. But um, it, it's really forced us to think wildly outside the box. And so in, in really positive ways. Um, another example of that would be we've, we've really been investigating ways that some of our school districts, I serve a lot of small rural school districts. And so um, often they faced teacher shortages or they just can't find some of the positions um, for certain coursework. And so districts have been turning to us to see if there are ways that we could help um, kind of marry different districts together. If, if somebody has physics, can we try to offer that to other districts? And um, so, again, some ideas that people had been dreaming up for some years, but it seemed so outside of the box at the time. And now folks are just really engage, interested in engaging in that conversation. So um, as at, as I've taken on this role at the service center, I've just kind of gone with the the flow of, of the way that the pandemic has guided us. And I, I think that there's lots of innovations that we have come up with um, that were born of this. That's so exciting. I love to hear that. Thanks, Katie. How about you, Quentin? Yeah, and I'll just uh, give a big thank you to Katie uh, for going first so that I had had time to make a couple of notes, the stuff that first came to mind. Um, I think there's just two two big things that come to mind, and then I have some some other points that will tail on afterwards. I think the first part is you have to create the culture for innovation. I've been a superintendent now for 16 years in three different states, and my first superintendency was, for me, uh, pretty vanilla. I, I didn't try much. I wasn't innovative. I didn't think like an entrepreneur. And in my second superintendency, I, I started to realize that there was a, a real need for this and, and tried to find ways that could work and that could make that happen. But there's a there's a learning trajectory to that as well. And, and, you know, throughout my career as a superintendent, I've had the opportunity to meet lots of entrepreneurs in the education space. And so I've, you know, been studying these people. 
like what is it that makes them tick and and how is it that they build their culture of entrepreneurship and then try to apply those lessons in in the school setting so I, I go back to this notion that you have to create that culture you have to create a culture of entrepreneurship it's not necessarily our ideas as, as superintendent CEOs to come up with the idea but it is our job to make the culture where others can do that and so how do you do that I think that takes me to the second big point. It's it, at least the way I put it is you have to reduce the cost of failure so that you can increase the value. And it, it's all about a culture of failure. And, and we can come back and talk about that um, through the through the podcast, but reduce the cost of failure so that you can increase the value. That's key. And then for me, I think the other the other thing that came to mind is, so what is it that I as a superintendent am, am looking for? to when it comes to hiring people in my innovation office. So I have an innovation office. It, those are the folks who have that entrepreneurial mindset. And and I came up with these sort of eight things that I see in, in people who are entrepreneurial in spirit. And I think this probably applies to, to corporate as well. These are people who generally are, they, they just have a need for achievement and, and a tendency to set really high goals. And they, and they tend to pursue them like relentlessly with clear metrics. Um, they're, you know, dynamic growth oriented, th- those sorts of things. And certainly that's not everybody in education and it shouldn't be everybody in education, but, but this, you know, group of people seems to function there. I think they're, um, number two, I think they're urgent in their approach to problem solving. Like they're just really super urgent about everything, which is, can be a good thing, but I think also can be detrimental, you know, because it, it taken to the extreme, it can be, it can be a negative. Uh, number three, they have this internal locus of control. Like they, they, you know, are self-motivated, self-driven. They see themselves as responsible for their outcomes, you know, the, the whole bit. They have a, number four, I think they have a high tolerance for ambiguity. Like they're just flexible and adaptive and not everybody, this is a big differentiator. Not everybody is as comfortable with ambiguity, but if you can embrace that mindset, I think that that's part of an, an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, the, the word I wrote down was strategic influencing. They, they focus on their you know, personal relationships in order to meet the needs of the organization. Um, uh, they have a bias for action. I think I mentioned that they have the ability to other, two other things too. They, I think they have the ability to turn what most of us see as constraining variables. Like I can't do this because, and they turn those constraining variables into enabling variables. And it's just how their mind works. Like, oh, I can do this. It turns out the schedule isn't the most important thing of, of our school day. So it enables and, and off they go. And then the last part is that they iterate frequently. Like it's just constantly iterating on, on new ideas or, or new thoughts or new ways of, of doing our work. That is so you know, fantastic. I just took a bunch of notes. Doug, go ahead. If I may hop in, you know, I, I have the privilege of talking to, you know, many superintendents, including these two amazing people, but um, I get a sort of, I can get kind of um, broad brush strokes from folks. I've seen our membership get a little space to try things out. Um, I think Quentin said it um, a little smarter about risk-taking and um, all of that. Really, I, I think sometimes in school districts, whether it's board politics or the pressure from the community or or just a, um, a, a, a need to sort of not rock the boat too much, um, leaders like Katie and Quentin and others don't get a chance to just some, throw some stuff against the wall and see what sticks because it's, you know, it, it can sort of feel like you're experimenting with kids' lives and education. 
but you enter this situation this year and there's no playbook for this. Nobody knows how to do this. And I think it, in a weird way, in a sad way, it's sad that it took this terrible thing happening to all of us um, for some of these skills to come out of these amazing people. But um, they were able to, to, to find some interesting, creative new solutions. My great fear, find those solutions because, um, because when you're desperate, that's sometimes when you get most creative. My great fear is that um, I've got the words of Dr. Susan Enfield, one of our members from Highline, Washington, kind of uh, haunting me. She said at, at our fall summit, um, she's worried that the status quo is very strong and it's going to be very easy to go back to everything that we're used to. And that might feel, you know, like everyone talks about wanting to return to normal, but we've learned some things this year in these districts that we can, there are better ways to do things that we're doing. So I just, I hope, um, and I've been saying this a lot on our podcast, I hope boards, press, community members, elected officials are seeing what these folks are doing in their districts, what these district leaders are doing, recognizing the creativity and finding ways to build more um, leeway, more free space to try new ideas into the mix. So if the superintendent comes back to the board and says, hey, everybody, I think we might want to consider changing the calendar and adding time to the school day or adding a month of instruction or, you know, this, that, or the other. Um, I, I hope there's going to be more openness to say, okay, let's think about that. And that people will start to realize that superintendents, they're, they're stewards of, of the district and the students and district policies and, you know, making sure that um, quality standards are met, but they're also folks who can steer the ship in a different direction to get a better result and I hope that their innovation and ingenuity can be trusted after this. I hope, I hope some, some credibility has been earned for these folks as entrepreneurial thinkers and innovators. That's, that's my hope. Yeah, me too. And really giving more leeway for change and um, disruption, which, you know, clearly everything's been disrupt, but, but disrupted, but keeping that going, moving forward. I agree. So I'm curious, um, you, you touched on this, both of you, Katie and Quentin, but why do you think an entrepreneurial mindset is important for schools and districts? And is this something you saw prior to the pandemic, or are you seeing other districts also reconsider how they're pr- approaching their work and bringing in a new mindset shift to how they're addressing challenges and considering changes right now? Do you want to start, Quentin? Sure, I'm happy to. You know, I think I think we all saw pockets of this work happening around the country prior to the pandemic. There were schools and districts that were making concerted efforts to be innovative and entrepreneurial and, and education, but it was not something that everyone was doing and trying. Doug is exactly right. We we were thrown into the pandemic, and it was a it was a totally new world for all of us. It was it was all about innovation and and creativity and and an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I've been telling this story a lot lately to my colleague superintendents around the country. You know, there's this great business, uh, there's this great business case uh, that they study in business schools, you know, around the country uh, called the Honda Yamaha Motorcycle Wars of 1980s. I, I just think we're living that right now in education. I mean, the short of it is, you know, you can tell the story very quickly in under, in under a minute. Yamaha, their, their premise in the, the early 80s was, you know, a, ch- a time of drastic change in the in the world of motorcycles. People wanted something different, and, and everybody knew that. So Yamaha, they stuck with what they knew. They spent exactly one percent on R and D, one percent, 
They introduced a total of 17 new models in 1981, 82, and 83, and they only discontinued three models. That was Yamaha's approach. We know what we're doing. There were some educators who did the same thing. We're not going to innovate. We're going to stick with what we know because what we know is best. But Honda, on the other hand, they were adapting quickly. So in 1981, the same year that Yamaha introduced 17 new models, Honda introduced 17 new models as well. They were the same. They're essentially equal. But in the next year, 1982 and 1983, they introduced 81 new models, 81 new models. And when Yamaha discontinued only three models over that three-year span, Honda discontinued 32 models, 10 times the amount. So what they were doing is they were iterating as fast as they could. They were changing it up as frequently as they could to meet the demands of the consumer. That business case study is happening in education right now. Those schools that could adapt and iterate based on the community's demands or the community's need, constantly asking the community, what do you need? What do you need? What's working? What's not working? Rebuild, 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 rebuild. Takes a tremendous amount of flexibility, right? We talked about that in, in my first response to you. They have to be comfortable with tremendous ambiguity. But if you can get there, if you can create that entrepreneurial culture, it allows you to thrive. And of course, the question you have to ask is, how many Yamaha motorcycles do you see on the road? None. And I think that that might be the future of education for those folks that are stuck in the past and want to get back to what they knew. I think parents and, and the public are, are thinking, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think we should go back to that. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's almost like the 80-20 rule too. When you, we need to start focusing on that 20% of what's actually working and really, and figure out what's working and let's, let's make that the 100%, take that 20. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. How about you, Katie? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that having an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mindset is, is hard. Um, and I think that's why people shy away. I mean, it, some of this is, I think superintendents are so inundated with decision-making so frequently. And, and these to, to think in this way, there's, there's no right answer. There's no, um, we're not going to solve it in a day type of situations that sometimes that task just seems overwhelming. And, and like Doug mentioned, you know, um, the pressures that school leaders have from whether that's a board or the community or, um, for a lot of the districts that I serve where it's, um, there are fiscal pressures, you know, they, they, um, there aren't dollars to experiment with. So we have to stay safe and, and be as strategic as possible with every penny. Um, and so I think for that, that reason, we naturally go to what's safe and um, what seems to be, you know, generally accepted. But I think that kind of what I mentioned, some of these ideas that um, we've kind of been thrown into due to the pandemic, I think that we have seen now some proof that it works. I think there have been some situations that those who are maybe more resistant to this mindset um, now have like kind of seen how thinking in this way can pay off. Um, I, again, what Doug mentioned about forgiveness, they, they've had that ability to take risks that they have seen it again, pay off. And so um, I, I think I'm optimistic, I guess, that we're going to see, see this kind of as an impetus to more people thinking in this way. And so I, I think some folks just, just need the push or, or the, um, something to show them that it's okay. And in a weird way, COVID has 
brought that opportunity. And and I'm not saying that we would ever want wish that to happen, but I think that we can be optimistic that we're going to see more people move towards an entrepreneurial mindset in education. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually a perfect segue, Katie, because you mentioned it's not always easy to think that way. And it's it's it can be a challenge with all the pressure you're facing. Do you think some educators are intimidated or have certain biases when they hear the word entrepreneur and they kind of think that has nothing to do with me as an educator? And and do you think we should be more open to that concept? Do you want to take that, Katie, since you were just kind of touching on that one? Sure. I think that um, there is a bias to that. I, I would be It would be curious to interview some people and, and to see if they would acknowledge that they have that bias or if it's just kind of an undertone that mm-hmm. you know, we, we naturally shy away from that word because folks who are maybe entrepreneurs, they're um, not realists, perhaps, is, is what would happen, um, I think, for folks who are, are resistant to that idea. Um, and and again, what we talked about, it, the pressures are are real. And so sometimes to take a risk, you know, it could, it could be your job, it could be your future, um, if, if the conditions are not just right. And so I, I, that is intimidating. You know, when you ask if folks are are intimidated by the word entrepreneur, if, if there's not a lot of support around that, then um, it, it can be um, intimidating. But I, I do, again, hope that folks that are are recognizing that this is okay at, at a greater scale. I, there's lots of people out there who have known this for a long time and accepted this for a long time, but um, it it does have that kind of undertone that maybe somebody thinking outside the box isn't thinking realistically. And so I hope that um, folks feel that they have permission to take these risks. If I may, Katie and Sarah, I think um, part of part of what you know, I, I have a lot of contact with the industry, right? Because we we bring in industry partners to to visit with and meet with superintendents as part of our think tank, and um, I think that the industry sort of caused this problem to some extent, in part because when when quote unquote ed tech really started to explode when you know, five or six years after the internet started to explode, there, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, big picture type, you know, sweeping change idea companies that came out and it was, you know, we, there was sort of, I think a lot of educational leaders, teachers, superintendents, et cetera, felt like these, these, these people from, you know, these venture capital types are trying to tell us how to teach kids with, despite having no experience, you know, would a venture capitalist walk into an operating room and tell a surgeon how to do an operation, right? It's that there was sort of that pushback. And I think that maybe our industry um, tried to bite off more than it could chew when it first started doing internet stuff, if you will. And I hope that there has been some reconciliation, maybe some, some humble pie eaten by some of the big, big, bold companies that were going to change the world that didn't really ever get traction beyond some freemium users. And really, we've seen the whole concept of, of freemium in our space, give it away to, to all the teachers and parents, and then the district will eventually buy it, largely has not come to fruition in terms of any kind of majorly successful, you know, businesses that have exited. And, you know, it would frustrate me as somebody who 
believes in, advocates for, works closely with superintendents. It would frustrate me to go to an industry event and hear a group of investor, venture capital, private equity people say, yeah, school districts are just bad at business. They don't get it. They're hard to work with. You have to do these RFPs and how terrible are RFPs. You know, there's up there talking about how they shouldn't, there shouldn't be a transparent process for spending a community's taxpayer dollars. It just, it would frustrate me to no end that that was the solution is like, just skip all that and try to go around it. Whereas if you put in the time and do the work, and if you have the patience, you know, that's a different kind of entrepreneur, I think, than the big, um, you know, swinging Silicon Valley, let's, you know, party our faces off in our 20s kind of entrepreneur that maybe people were thinking about when when in a school district, they think, oh, I don't, we don't want to work with entrepreneurs. The kind of entrepreneurs that I'm seeing now in our space are mostly former teachers. I'm seeing way more um, uh, bootstrapped companies or just angel company, angel backed companies. A lot of companies are skipping the venture capital route. You're seeing less and less companies raise $25 million, which in education is a truckload of money. And a lot more companies raising $1 million or $2 million, which buys you a few years to get your product up and running. Um, you're not seeing massive sales forces get built um, with you know, hiring 20 people to go just blitz the country. You're seeing founders really dig in more to do the work of engaging with superintendents to understand the needs of the district and maybe bringing on a person or two to help or a junior inside person. You're, you're just seeing more measured growth from these companies. And not for nothing, the, the people who are running these companies, if they're bootstrapping or, or doing just angel rounds, they're maintaining more control. And you've also seen a lot of the companies that went big and raised 20, 30, whatever million dollars. Some of them have come back, um, you know, way retooled, um, you know, uh, shedding a bunch of staff, shedding some product in some cases, but coming back with a, with a more measured, small thinking approach. And I think that will help districts feel like, you know what, these are, these are no different than, you know, no one ever complains about a school bus companies trying to quote unquote, make money off of kids, right? Because the school bus company is a local company that people know, you know, the owner, you know, the owner, you know, pays his or her bills by running school buses, right? So nobody, uh, th- those kind of entrepreneurs we're fine working with in districts. I think you're going to see more quote unquote ed tech companies that are going to start to look and feel more like the local mom and pop shops that you're happy to give your money to. So as board members, maybe the tone gets set that, you know, these are, these are companies that are really engaged with working with us. They just happen to be a for-profit company. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about this new era of what ed tech will be. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, Doug. I'm glad you shared that. I like that. Um, Quinton, do you have any thoughts on on why you think there's a bias to the word entrepreneur? Or just any um, any? What would you yeah. say to that? Yeah, I, I I'd love to build on what Doug just said. That was really insightful, and and that yeah. perspective is so um, fascinating to me. And I would add one layer to to what he said. So he he talked about the big internet, you know. And, and companies coming in and, and having answers and, you know, coming into education. But then um, what I would add to that is in education, for about 40 years in the making, we've created a culture of fear around failure. I mean, you can go all the way back to, you know, a nation at risk. And basically the message is schools are doing bad and it's teachers' fault. 
And, and every iteration of federal law since then has been the same message. And it gives legislators and sometimes sometimes the public the opportunity to say, you're failing our kids, you're failing our kids, and school report cards and grades and on and on and on. And I think that we've, we've created, we've institutionalized a fear of failure in education. But here's the thing that I have learned. 16 years as a superintendent, people don't fear failure. They fear blame. And there's a big difference. People don't fear failure. They fear blame. So if you can remove blame from the equation, people are less afraid. And to Doug's point, the internet boom was happening at about the same time this culture of fear of failure was happening. And so when ed tech came in and said, you're not getting it done, we have the answer. It was more of the same. And it was maybe unintentional, but I think that there were superintendents who heard that message. Oh, I'm a failure. I have to protect myself against this because we were trying desperately to protect our teachers from being called a failure. And, and when you can, when you can adopt this mindset of, you know, ed tech brings something to the scene that's, that's immeasurably valuable and we need to try it in our environment to see if it works because it doesn't always work in every environment. Well, you've taken blame out of the equation. You've said this might fail. It might succeed. Let's find out. Let's find out. Let's let's do a pilot study and, and see if it works. Uh, but it was just an unfortunate circumstance that EdTech really exploded at about the same time that this this culture was was in full swing. I do think that the culture is starting to ebb on that ever so slightly. And I think that's inherently good for all of us, frankly. Yeah, I totally agree. So I'm also curious, Quentin, so you've mentioned a few different things about takeaways that you've had from this experience and strategies you think other districts should implement, particularly when it comes to having an entrepreneurial mindset. And I love the the four that you laid out. Those are fantastic. And I'm going to include those in the show notes. So thank you. But I'm you mentioned reducing the cost of failure. Could you share more about that. You just shared, is this, is that what you meant by taking the blame off or, or did you have yeah. more you want to share on that? Yeah, absolutely. So for, so for, for me, what it means now in the context of the district I'm at now in Victoria, it, it was setting up an office of innovation and being explicit about the culture that we're trying to create in the office of innovation, which is to put it simply, try lots of stuff. <laughs> figure out what works and, right. and what doesn't. And we're not going to go full scale with any major uh, innovation. We're going to go small scale and learn and iterate and adapt as fast as possible and just cherish and protect that culture. And, 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 and what I've learned the hard way over, over my career is you can't put that inside the system. You can't put that inside the education system because if you, if you embed it in the system, the system will eat it. It will eat it and it will dissolve. So you have to carve your system in such a way that the Office of Innovation has this somewhat unstructured, unfettered access to cross boundaries and try stuff. And it's not for everyone. It is absolutely not for everyone, but we've had massive success in in really short order. And the stuff that's working, we're just doing more of it. And the stuff that doesn't work, nobody gets blamed. Like that, that never happens. Nobody gets blamed. The stuff that doesn't work, we just chalk it up as a learning lesson. We don't use data. We don't use information as a hammer. Because then you create a culture of hide and seek. It is what we're doing working or not, right? And I, I'm just going to, you know, use kindergarten parlance for this. That's that's how a lot of school districts operate. If if data is a hammer, if if information, if a program's working or it's not working, is a hammer, then you get a hide and seek culture. And the culture that I'm after is show and tell. Like, and that that requires a flashlight. 
So when programs are working, you, you highlight it and say, let's do more of that. And if programs are not working, you highlight that and you say, let's do less of that. And, and nobody gets punished along the way. I love that. Katie, do you have any thoughts on, on what takeaways you think other districts and other leaders can start implementing? I just have to Quentin, you are such an eloquent speaker. So kudos to you. I like capture that. Yeah. You should write a book. Anyway, um, I think that um, I want to go back to a little bit what Doug was talking about with some of the ed tech companies and how that relates to some of the districts that I serve, because um, some of the things that we've been trying at as a service center is, is just to pivot to the need, identify, you know, what do districts need from us and, and let's move to try to solve that problem for them. Um, but one of my favorite things about being part of this network through IEI is that um, a lot of the ed tech companies that I have met through this are willing to hear that. So I go to the districts and I say, you know, what are some problems of practice right now and how can I bring us together? I mean, at the core of what we do is, is building some consortiums to try to try to help districts collaborate. And so I get those ideas and I go back to these ed tech companies and I'm often saying that, you know, the product that I'm looking for doesn't exist or I reach out to, um, or I have these ideas that I think that they could implement into their ed tech. And the best part of those all of those conversations and they're like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's build that. Let's add that to our product. And um, that's just been really exciting on both sides. So I'm able to go back to other districts and say like, they heard your feedback and, and um, you know, watch watch what your ideas have created for these companies. And, and I just kind of love that position of being able to, um, to, to be that for both sides of the equation, if you will, to be able to talk to the districts, try to help them solve the need, and then coming to the ed tech company saying, can you help us do this? Um, and so I guess in, in the sense of, of takeaways from this era, I, I hope that we can continue to do that. I hope that we can um, truly collaborate in all of the ways that we can solve problems together. Um, and so I've just really appreciated those companies who have heard from the field, if you will, um, what, how they can adapt to be the most helpful. And I just think that's really exciting. Yeah, that is really exciting and pretty impressive when those companies are nimble enough to just immediately move on your suggestions and, you know, midstream, I think that's powerful. So I'm curious, both of you, how has this experience, this minor experience of a pandemic changed you as educators and as people? I mean, how, how do you think you've really changed amidst this, these challenges? Quentin, do you want to take a stab at that? Sure. Um, if I, the, I guess the philosopher in me says it's probably changed me in ways that I maybe don't yet fully understand, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, mm-hmm. But if there's one thing that I do know for sure, one, one change that I've seen and, and believe more firmly now than I've ever believed in my, in my career or maybe even in my life, but it, it's made me more convinced that leadership in the public sphere has changed dramatically, dramatically in the public sphere, not in the private sphere. Um, and, and there's this and, and Doug has heard me go on for hours about this, so I, 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 I won't go. But it, but it's it's an area of passion for me. Essentially, it all hinges on this notion of complicated versus complex. And in the public sphere, complicated is the work that has 
usually one right answer. It requires a skill set of expertise to, to be able to do it. So think like bond defeasement schedules, for instance, setting up a school district budget, so on and so forth. You have experts who do that. I have a staff who do, does that and they do it well. But on the other side, there's this complex thing. Now, complex never has one right answer. It, there never is a right answer. Nobody actually knows what to do in the world of complex. And a lot of what we've been doing in public leadership is taking complex things and telling the public, oh, it's just, it's complicated. We'll figure it out and then we'll present you with a solution. The public rejects that. The public inherently knows that that's a bunch of BS because complex is inherently unknowable and you could go to Google and you could search. And so for things like when's the best time to run a bond or what's the best way to rezone a district and do boundary analysis, or for instance, what we're going through right now, when's the best time to you know sell this bond and do what projects to what degree? Is, is a conversation we're having with our community right now. These are all complex issues. I say all of this so that I can say that. The pandemic was complex. The best way to educate a student during a pandemic is inherently unknowable. So when it comes to complex in what we do in Victoria, we push all of that out into the community with a very compassionate heart. And we say, we know, we recognize there is not one right answer here, but we want to have a conversation with you because we think it shouldn't be the loudest voice, but it should be the best thought that wins. And we want to do that. And so we do crowdsourcing of most, if not all of our complex decisions facing the district. And we're very, very clear about the difference between complex work and complicated work. And it's a language that my community now speaks. My community will say back to us, you know what, we're starting to we're starting to delve into the work of the complicated and there's a staff to do that. And so they call themselves on that. And it's just been a revolutionary shift for my leadership. And I I, I attribute it to the success, if you can call it success that we've had through the pandemic is is just recognizing this fundamental difference um, when it comes to public leadership. That's so impressive, Quentin. That's incredible. Katie, I'm curious about your um, how you've changed throughout this experience. Yeah, I appreciate this question. Um, just kind of taking a pause to, to notice um, how I've changed. And uh, being completely vulnerable here on this podcast, like it's, I, it has pushed me. Like I, I have definitely felt myself. I am, I want to do the right thing by all. Like, I think we all naturally want to do that, but like in this situation, we've been pushed to accept that like what we know today might not be true tomorrow. (laughs) Like, and it's okay. Um, and so I think that, um, that's just been a big takeaway for me personally to just pause and say, um, it, it's okay, I guess. It's okay to not know. It's okay to um, not not have the answer right now. And um, that, that's been, I guess, good for me in a way to, to make me pause and, and think about um, my own practice. And so I, I think also I've, I personally and as a leader have thought and granted, the the shift in a role has pushed me to think this way, but I think so much more big picture. Like, where are we headed? And and is this, I guess, to what I just said, is this going to matter tomorrow? Um, type of situation because it's really easy, you know, to get just sucked into the day to day operations and and just trying to to get through the logistical type of things. And and so this has really pushed me in in a way that I appreciate to be more visionary and to think about um, the the scope of, of the ways that we can make impact as leaders. And so that's been, um, 
kind of a another, I guess, secret um, benefit of COVID <laughs> that we we all probably have had some experience like that to just pause and notice ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And the characteristics you just mentioned are actually um, characteristics of having an entrepreneurial mindset. It's future planning, visionary, um, passion, and risk-taking, all those things. So I think that's that's going on for all of us. But I do want to mention just how much we appreciate the work you both are doing. I mean, I can't imagine being a district leader right now. So I do want to just th- say thank you to both of you for everything you're doing. And I'm so in awe of your approach to how you're handling this this challenge. It's very impressive. So one final question for both of you. I'm curious if you have, this is actually the final ser- uh, final podcast episode of our series on bringing the entre- entrepreneurial mindset to education. So I'm curious if you have any final words of wisdom to help us wrap this up and um, for our listeners to just really think about as they proceed in um, hopefully what we, we will know as a post-pandemic world soon. Go ahead, Quentin, if you wouldn't mind taking that one first. Yeah, it's easy for me. Uh, for the for the education leader, be deliberately developmental about your culture. Be deliberately developmental about your culture. You, you, you can't just innovate on a whim. You can't be entrepreneurial on a whim. You have to create the culture to make that happen. And that requires a tremendous uh, focus, especially on the language we use in education, because so much of the language we use runs antithetical to actually being innovative or entrepreneurial in spirit. So culture first. Love that. How about you? Um, oh my gosh. I think that a big takeaway is just to appreciate the value of networking. And, and as I've felt myself, you know, really nurturing this entrepreneurial mindset. It's reaching out to people who do things so much differently than we do. Um, it's, it's, it's hearing different perspectives, you know, across the country, again, through the network here at IEI and, and just really being able to, um, kind of leverage those relationships to, to help form your own decision-making. Um, and so I think that I've just, again, really reflected on the power of having a robust network. And I think that that just really ties nicely into the concept of, of being an entrepreneurial thinker, going out and finding people who, who challenge the way that you think and, um, and, and come hearing their experiences, even just being on this call today has been so, so powerful. So I think that, um, a big takeaway is, is the power of your network. Yeah, absolutely. Doug, do you have any final thoughts for us? I'll say what's sure. And thank you for, for having us, Sarah. It's always great to work with you. And thanks for help um, helping to tell the stories of this great work that Katie and Quentin and, and all superintendents around the country are doing. You know, um, my own personal leadership journey during this, there was a moment where I think I realized I was a, um, I was sort of, I'd made a couple of good decisions and there's a little bit of guesswork involved. And I don't know. There are some leaders who are kind of, um, you know, a, uh, you know, wartime leaders. <laughs> uh, and this is kind of like a wartime to sort of survive this thing. Survival is success. If you can get your organization through this in one piece, you're succeeding. Um, and then there are other people who are good sort of um, longer range, you know, peacetime leaders who can think about, um, you know, 
many years down the road and understanding your skill sets there. I was trying to apply what I thought was good business leadership. I was trying to, to model. I spent hours, Saturday mornings, Sunday mornings, modeling things out in Excel. Well, if this happens, then we could try this. And well, we could try to do a virtual event here. And then, a, right, like I was game planning all this stuff and I was spending tons of time on it. And um, I realized that this was not the time to be, you know, really thinking deeply about the long term. This is the time to figure out this week and then next week and then next week. And um, I just sort of realized, hey, I guess I'm finding out that in like really kind of crazy, stressful times, I can trust my gut a little bit more and spend less time on the long range planning. But when we get back to peacetime, hopefully after everyone's vaccinated and, you know, um, schedules are back to normal and people can travel and all that stuff, you know, I, I can't continue to think with the wartime fight or flight mentality. At some point I have to try to recognize as a leader when we're back there and then start to get back to, to that kind of more long range planning and, and, and try to grow my skill set in that area if it's lacking. So it seems it's very, because we're in February now, when I think back to how different February of 20 was to this February, you know, and just how much I've learned and how much we've done, how much new stuff we've tried, um, you know, there, there was a moment where I think it started to click that we can, we can, we can ride the hot hand a little bit right now because it's just, it's just crazy. And, you know, what do you have to lose? Yeah, absolutely. That's great, Doug. Thank you. So I would love to, my listeners to know how they could reach out to each of you if they want to. Um, I don't know if, Doug, you could share your contact info first, and then we'll go with Quentin and then Katie. Thanks. Uh, at IEI underscore K12 on Twitter, on LinkedIn, either under my name, Doug Roberts, or Institute for Education Innovation, and www.instituteforedinnovation.com. Really glad to be here. Great. Thanks. Quentin, how about you? Uh, I'm at Twitter at Q Shepard. Um, on LinkedIn, I do a lot more on LinkedIn than I do on Twitter. I'm, I'm sort of on again, off again with Twitter. And then, of course, email is just my first name uh, and last name, but with a period in between them. So Quentin period Shepard at VISD.net. Perfect. Katie? Yeah, I too am most active on LinkedIn. So you can definitely find me there. And then um, my email is klash at ECESC, like East Central Educational Service Center, k12.in.us. Perfect. Thank you all so much for joining us. I think this is a fantastic way to close up the Entrepreneurial Mindset series. Uh, you provided some fantastic insights. It's always great to hear from district leaders because we're always talking about you. It's actually nice to talk with you. So <laughs> it's great to have you. And thank you so much. And I hope you um, have a great day. Thank you so much. Take care, Sarah. Thanks. Episode 12 is in the books. Thank you for tuning in. I guess you don't tune in. Thanks for, thanks for subscribing. Thanks for listening to what we're doing here at Toxip and CEOs. We have fun doing it. We have fun sharing the stories of these incredible people we work with, both our superintendent members and our partners. Quentin and Katie um, are both new to IEI this year. We're just uh, we're thrilled to have them. I've known Quentin for a while, but really just excited to have him in this group. It's uh, it's it's great. And this is Katie's first year as a superintendent, um, which is really cool. Um, we need more millennial superintendents. She's got a really great approach to this work. So 
Thank you both. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Build Momentum Podcast, for having us on and cross-potting cross with us. And I uh, hope everyone enjoys the Super Bowl. I am pulling for the Chiefs. I just I have a feeling that Tom's got one more in him. And uh, I'm not thrilled about that. However, I want to point out to everybody, while my New York Giants didn't have a great campaign this year, they just missed making the playoffs. And if they'd made it, if they'd made it, if Philly hadn't tanked that last game against the team from Washington, do you think? Do you think they they? I mean, they don't have Eli anymore. But do you think they find another, find the magic one more time to deny Tom Brady one of his rings? I think without us, without the New York Giants, without Big Blue, my friends, the dude is already sitting on eight rings. That's I'm just telling you that right now. So. This would he'd be going for number nine if it weren't for the New York Giants. So, as you watch this game today, thank yourself. Th- sorry, think to yourself how lucky you are for the New York Giants on <laughs> those two most amazing Super Bowls I think I'm ever going to see in my life. I was thinking about this too because you know we're all locked in our homes. Well, at least we're supposed to be. Um, I'm kind of tired of seeing ads around town for like buy a tray of wings. Who's eating a tray of wings with? two or three other people in their house, right? Like, who's having Super Bowl parties? Uh, frustrates me to no end. But anyway, um, you know, we're all locked in our homes. I'm going to make, like, a couple of... I'm going to make, like, a plate of nachos <laughs> for my wife and daughter and try to get them as interested in the game as possible, but probably I'll be on on uh, text or Zoom with a couple of buddies. Um, but my point is, when I think about Tom Brady being in the Super Bowl... And naturally, as a Giant fan, takes me back to thinking about my New York Giants and thinking about the great Eli Manning and the David Tyree helmet catch and and all the Jay Alford sack of Tom Brady with one minute left in the fourth quarter. All this stuff is emblazoned in my memory bank. And here we are watching Tom Brady, and and the guy looks kind of the same. And he's still got Gronkowski with him, who we beat in the second time we beat the Patriots. Anyway, um... I think about those Super Bowl games and how different life is then and now. You know, I, these were the first one was before the one in '07 was before we had our daughter. So like, we were out and about at a like a bar in Brooklyn with a bunch of people. And like after that Jay Alfred sack, I probably hugged like three or four strangers in in this bar called Cody's in uh, in Cobble Hill. For those who know the city in Brooklyn, um, anyway. So could the thought just imagining. Being in a sports bar, first of all. Secondly, watching a ball game with a bunch of people yelling. Uh, and thirdly, after a great play, high-fiving, hugging random strangers. I don't know that we're ever going to do that again. At all. Like, you go to a concert, you go to a... I don't know that... Go to a sporting event. Like, the next time I go to a Yankee game and, you know, Aaron Judge hits a three-run homer... Am I going to high-five random dudes next to me? I don't know. <laughs> like, even after all vaccinated and all that, but what if the next virus gets handed off by, like, hand cooties or something? Which, you know, this one doesn't, but, you know, we do know it's not right to, it's not safe to shake hands. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I hope we're going to find another way to do that kind of stuff, because when I think about Tom Brady in a Super Bowl, I think about watching him lose to my Giants and being out in a very festive group of people on a Sunday evening when I should have been home sleeping so I could get ready for work. Fun little, I'm, I'm going way overboard. I don't know that any of you care about this. Probably people have turned this off by now because you're here to talk about 
K-12 education and all the great leadership stuff that's happening, but one of my favorite Super Bowl stories has to do with that 2007 uh, Super Bowl 42 amazing victory over um, the Patriots by Eli Manning and the Giants. They were never supposed to win that game. I could have a whole podcast episode talking about how much I loved that ball game. But um, aside from my sort of hugging random strangers at Cody's in Cobble Hill, uh, I was still working at Wireless Generation at the time, which was then Amplify. I had a, a normal job with a boss, and <laughs> um, yeah, I was a I was a sales guy. I had to hit numbers, right? Um, and our CEO Larry Berger, who's been on this podcast and is a friend and mentor, he came to me on the Friday before Super Bowl weekend. I don't think Larry's much of a football fan. Um, <laughs> he came to me and said, "Hey, um, I'm supposed to be in Oakland Monday morning. Like, think of how different life was." On a Friday, you'd be like, oh, I have to go to Oakland. I have a one o'clock meeting with the district leadership team at Oakland Unified School District. But I also have this other thing I have to do. Would you mind taking that meeting for me? And if you close it, it can, you know, count against your, you know, count it, you get credit for it, like in the whatever sales plan. In other words, like I get, I would get a commission on it if I closed it, right? So I'm thinking, you know, this is who I am. I'm like, well, when your boss walks into your office and hands you an opportunity on a silver platter and you want to deliver for your boss, you want to be good at your job, you say, okay, absolutely, sure, what time, where do I have to be, whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, well, the Giants are probably going to get killed in this game, so I'll probably be glad to have something to do that morning. So I booked the 6 a.m. flight uh, out of JFK, and at that time, I was flying all the time, so I knew I'd get an upgrade. So I, yes, you know, get, catch some shut eye on the way out. Shut eye on the way out. It's a one o'clock Pacific meeting, and you know, I didn't have anything else that week, and I knew I had to travel the following week. So I was just like, eh, I'm just gonna fly home that day. A, an out and back cross country trip to help my boss close a significant strategic deal. Like from my perspective, it was cool that he even trusted me to do this. But you know, there's no way, no way that you know I'm gonna go home after the game and be sad um, and get a few hours sleep and go out and do the meeting and it'll be you know hopefully a great win and all that so um, then fast forward to Sunday I'm not remotely thinking about this trip out to see the whole leadership team of Oakland Unified School District at all right I'm locked in on my Giants playing in the Super Bowl then we get you know at halftime and they're kind of like hanging in the game. I don't remember the exact score at halftime, but I think they were only down, you know, maybe a, a field goal, um, or they were tied. And so I'm going, huh, this could be really fun. I'm, again, not thinking about Oakland at all, not thinking about the 6 a.m. flight or any of that stuff. Um, so <laughs> then we get into, the, you know, then obviously I'm not thinking about it. Then they win, right? They win the game. Jay Alford sacks Brady uh, with one minute left, and they are going to win. And it's, yeah, pandemonium all that after the game we like everyone just sort of pours out into the streets cars in the streets honking i'm like finally part of that thing that happens in towns when a team wins something doesn't always happen in new york because there's so many people who are not from new york uh and also it's like oh the yankees won another world series yay but this was so exciting and because it was football and more people watch football than baseball the whole all of brooklyn was out honking you know again like high fives and shaking hands and so you know we were young adults with no kids hey let's go out right <laughs> so now we're out and it you know whatever wherever you are turns into like a super bowl post-game party and 
the DJ and all this stuff. It's a Sunday night. You know, normally we are well ensconced at home and in bed, even even at this young adult age. Um, at some point, I remember. Oh shoot! <laughs> I've got a, uh, we didn't have Ubers back then. I got a car service coming at four thirty to take me to JFK, which, by the way, is cutting it close for a six a.m. flight from Brooklyn out to JFK. But you know, I knew the airport and I had the whatever, at the time whatever the fast lane was for security. Um, we're out till like one thirty, <laughs> two o'clock, uh, and celebrating the giant win. And sure enough, that car service shows up at four thirty, and you know, right as rain, like I always do in the morning, I'm up, suit tie loosened, but uh, on. Grab the bag. Only need only need my laptop bags. I'm not staying overnight. Get in that car service, and I am tired. Sleep the whole way out. Um, get over. Get out there. The airport. Brush teeth. Gonna wash the face. Tighten the knot in the tie. Head out from SFO to Oakland Unified. My voice was a little raspy because I've been yelling so much during the game, and I got two hours sleep. Um, but I just sort of drank a bunch of water during the meeting. Led the presentation, closed the deal, got the partnership with Oakland Unified. Fantastic Super Bowl memory. Fantastic two days. And, uh, you know, obviously my bosses and the company were really happy with me. They had no idea that I, until this moment, they had no idea that I did that meeting on two hours sleep after celebrating the giant Super Bowl win in the streets of Brooklyn. So um, that's my Super Bowl memory related to K-12 work. Hope everybody enjoys it. And... Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I do hope the Chiefs pull it out. I've got a ton of friends who are Chiefs fans, but yeah, I think the smart money, the smart money, I think, is on Tampa Bay plus three and a half. And it's gonna be close. Enjoy everybody.